0: Amen. Well, thank you so much uh, for your presence here today. Thank you. Uh, I've been in the uh, great city of New Orleans uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I'm such a boring person that they shut everything down by 10 p.m. every night. Uh, But at the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, I just want to give a very quick update. I will give a full report at our uh, family meeting in July. But I would say, in a word, I was cautiously encouraged. Now, some of you might realize those are two words, not one. But if you say them very quickly, it sounds like one word. Uh, (laughs) Cautiously encouraged. So um, I was encouraged by some things at the Southern Baptist Convention. uh, Some things are still uh, being worked on. And um, we'll give you a full report uh, coming up next month because uh, there's a lot of details. Thank you for your prayers, and uh, had a very interesting uh, flight down. Um, on the way, after I got to Dallas, Fort Worth Airport, and got on the airplane to go to New Orleans, I realized that the president of Southwestern Seminary, um, the newly installed president of Southwestern Seminary uh, in Fort Worth, which is my alma mater where I got my doctorate, he was on the plane. I saw that he was getting on the plane, and I thought to myself, I wonder if he's sitting first class, and I was pleased to report that he is not sitting first class, and I went to, uh, as I was walking past him on the aisle, because he was seated first, I simply said to him, uh, Dr. Dockery, and he doesn't know who I am, but I said, Dr. Dockery, he said yes, and he extended his hand, I shook his hand, I said, I just want to say thank you, Uh, thank you for your work in fixing the things that are wrong at the, at the seminary. And, uh, and I made my way to my seat. On my flight back from New Orleans to Dallas-Fort Worth, I was seated next to a nice-looking couple. And I introduced myself, and I said, oh, well, what, what brought you to New Orleans? Or are you from New Orleans? Or are you going to Dallas for, to visit family or something? And they said, no, we were at the Southern Baptist Convention. I said, oh, really? Uh, I said, so was I. And I said, uh, my name is, is David Rhodes, and the man told me his name. And it sounded very familiar. And I said, where have I heard your name before? He said, well, I'm the president of Guidestone. Well, Guidestone is one of the 11 entities of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, and it's the one that holds uh, all of my retirement. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they handle insurance as well. And, and I said... I said, "Well, I'm very pleased to meet you." I said, "Um, "You have a lot less of my money than you did a few years ago, (laughs) and of no fault of your own." And uh, he he laughed and he said, "I uh," he said I appreciate that," and and uh, we had a good conversation. But he too was not seated in first class, even though he's the head of a multi-billion-dollar operation. And so um, those little things were a slight encouragement to me, uh, but there were other things that were even more so. And uh, I will talk about those at a future date. You know, today I wanted to ask you the question, if you've ever considered what your life would be like without God's help each day. I think there's a lot of people, probably many people in this room, who rely on God, depend on God. They're close to God. They consider God to be a friend. Um, they stay close to Him, and then there's other people, maybe, maybe in this room as well, who day by day, they really don't think of much of about God at all. God just doesn't cross their mind. But the reality is that whether you're very close to God or you don't think of Him very much, God is there, He is unseen, He's always present. And I think in this life we'll never fully understand all that God does for us. In the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in the 26th chapter, we have a story that's often overlooked. It's overlooked because the seas don't part in Genesis 26. No one walks on water in Genesis 26. No one is healed of any diseases in Genesis 26. But God is very present in Genesis 26. And in this particular chapter of Isaac's life, God is there wherever Isaac goes, and no matter what Isaac does, good or bad, God is there. And so in the very uh, first section of that chapter, and I hope that you'll go ahead and turn in your Bible if you have that uh, with you today. If not, uh, most of the verses will appear on the screen behind me. In the first 16 verses of this chapter, we We have uh, Isaac moving from one place to another. In fact, the entire chapter is him moving from this place to that place to another place. Uh, But in these different places where Isaac goes geographically, Isaac is encountering different types of people, and God is present with him all throughout the way. And so previously, Isaac was in a place called Hebron. Hebron is a little ways away from the Dead Sea, sort of to the west uh, of the Dead Sea, he lived this in this place called Hebron. And then uh, prior to this chapter, he made his way down the red line, if you're looking up at the screen, all the way down to a place called Beer Lahai Roy. And uh, so he moved quite a ways. He's got quite an enterprise, a commercial enterprise. He moved it all, all the way down to Bir Lahai uh, Roy. And in verse 1, here's what we read in Genesis 26, because he's down south. And we read this. Now, there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And so he went back up the green line and then turned turned left at a place called Beersheba. And he made his place to a town, a city called Gerar. And Gerar was more or less a capital city at that time of a group of people known as the Philistines. So, question... Why did Isaac move to Gerar? And the answer to you might be, well, who cares why he moved to Gerar? Well, there's there's a reason you should care why he moved, because it has something to do with you today. He moved there because of a famine. Now, we're very blessed in this country. We haven't had a serious famine uh, for many, many decades. a real famine, not for a long time. You know, and the word famine, you don't usually hear that word famine. Uh, We'll use the word drought, things like that, but you don't hear the word famine. It sounds like a very Old Testament word. In fact, you know, when a a natural disaster happens um, that is just tremendous and very devastating, newscasters even today, they'll say something like this. They'll say, it is a disaster of biblical proportions. You know, you you throw the word biblical in there, it makes it sound much bigger than perhaps it was. And in fact, the Bible is filled with natural disasters. You would consider uh, there's going to be some, both miraculous and natural, that might have occurred over a 4,000-year period, which is what the Bible uh, sort of looks at, uh, generally speaking. Because you have the flood, the worldwide flood of Noah. You have uh, fire and brimstone coming down and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. You have, uh, who can ever forget, the plagues of Egypt uh, that, that uh, devastated Egypt. You have the Red Sea uh, drowning the Egyptian army, and then you have famines that pop up from time to time, earthquakes and all types of things. You know, when, when we encounter famines or other natural devastating things, it can be absolutely disastrous. But I want you to understand something. And I think the people of Periton, Texas, as they've gone through a, a tremendous challenge with the tornado that, that hit that town and destroyed much of that town just this week, Uh, they will discover this if they didn't know it already, that disasters don't change your character. Disasters reveal your character. I hear people sometimes complain about their own lives. They say, well, I was given a raw deal. Or "If if my circumstances were better, I'd be a better person. Well, I wouldn't be this way, but then I went through a hard time. But I want you to understand something. Natural disasters, trials and tribulations, bad times, being put through the ringer, they don't change who you are. They merely expose what's already there. Bad times reveal who you really are. You see... Your spouse didn't make you angry. You were already an angry person. And then you didn't get your way. You see, when a selfish, angry person doesn't get their way, they react, how? With anger. Your kids didn't irritate you. You were already irritable. Your kids just brought it out. Because when a selfish, irritable person doesn't get his or her way, they react with irritation. I will agree with you that it sure would be a nice life if all these other people in my life would somehow become perfect. You know? The reality is they're probably saying the same thing about me. I sure wish he was perfect. My life would be a lot easier. But you know, we live, we live imperfect lives, surrounded by imperfect people. And maybe we need to show a little bit of, of grace, an extra measure of grace, especially in the bad times. And we do live in a world with disasters and famines and things like that. And this particular famine that Isaac suffered, It didn't change him into something else, but it brought out something within him, both some good and some bad. And so at the end of verse 1, we simply read that Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And then we read in verses 2 and 3, and Yahweh, that's the Lord, appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land, of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your seed I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven... And I will give your seed all these lands, and by your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And if you weren't familiar with the story, Abraham was Isaac's daddy. And because Abraham obeyed the Lord, Isaac Would likewise receive God's hand of blessing. Now Isaac's instinct, because of the famine, he wants to go to Egypt. He's sort of on his way there. He's taking the most natural path to Egypt, even though it seems like a long way away. And why would he go to Egypt? Well, you got a big river there called the Nile River, and the Nile River hardly ever dries up, right? I mean, when there's a famine in the land, when there's a drought in the land, you go where the water is. And so he can be okay if he just makes it to Egypt. That's what he's thinking. That's his natural instinct, and we know it's his natural instinct because otherwise God wouldn't have said don't. Don't go to Egypt. So let me ask you a question. When bad times hit you, where's the first place you look for help? Is it the world? The government? Where do you turn when things get tough? I mean, you and your heart, is it truly in God we trust, or is it in man? And so, Isaac, he made his way uh, all the way up to this place called Gerar, and we simply read in verse 6, so Isaac lived in Gerar. Now, Isaac intended Gerar, at this point, after speaking with the Lord, after the Lord talked to him, he intended for Gerar to be his home. But sometimes life doesn't go according to our plans, does it? Especially if we make bad choices. And that's what Isaac's about to do in verse 7. Then the the men of that place asked about his wife. And he said, she? She is my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife thinking, lest the men of the place kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful in appearance. Now, Rebecca was a looker. I mean, she was beautiful. How do we know? Because the very first time that Abraham's servant made his way to try to find a wife for Rebecca, he comes across this young woman. And the Bible says in chapter 24, verse 16 of this book, Now, the young woman was very beautiful in appearance. So, Isaac's thinking, I've got a problem. I'm in a foreign city. Maybe I'm outnumbered. They're going to want to take my wife for themselves and they'll kill me. So, here's Isaac's plan. He's basically going to say, Oh, her? She's my sister. Implying, she's good for the taking, just don't kill me. Well, the problem with that is Isaac is lying about their relationship. That's not his sister, that's his wife. And he's lying to the men in the same town, Abimelech's town, that Isaac's daddy, Abraham, lied to decades before. Now maybe this Abimelech is Abimelech Junior and just has the same name. It's been known to happen. But maybe it's the same guy many decades later, and Abimelech rules this town, and Isaac is lying to the men in this town, and he's telling them the same lie that his daddy did decades before when his daddy made his way to this town, and his daddy said, Oh, Sarah? She's not my wife. She's my sister, implying, don't kill me to get her. You can have her. And so Abraham actually said that to Abimelech, whereas Isaac is saying the same lie to the men in Abimelech's town. Verse 8. Now it happened. When he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife. Rebecca, I mean, for the sake of the kids in here, he's caressing her hair, okay? And so he, Abimelech looks and he sees, and they are having a good time. In fact, the word caressing literally means laughing. They're laughing like a husband and wife might laugh if they're having a good time, not like a brother and sister would laugh if they're having a good time. Sometimes you can just tell. And so Abimelech, he knows something's up. These two are really enjoying each other's company. And Abimelech obviously calls one of his his servants and he says, Get Isaac up here. I got some words with him. And then we read in verse 9. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, surely she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said in verse 10, What is this you have done? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech commanded all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, why in the world did Abimelech react this way? Abimelech remembers what happened decades before with Isaac's daddy, Abraham. Because as I said, Abraham did the same thing as Isaac. And what happened back then? Back then Abimelech didn't know any better. And Abimelech actually took Sarah with the intention of making her his own wife. But before Abimelech could consummate the marriage, an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, appeared to Abimelech in a dream and said to him, you are a dead man for taking abraham's wife as your own and abraham his reaction was i didn't know i didn't touch her and the angel of the lord said you didn't touch her because i didn't allow you to touch her implying i saved your life the angel of the lord said to him but if you do touch her, I will kill you, I will kill your family, and I will kill your entire household. Now, the angel of the Lord has never appeared to me and threatened me with death. I'm very grateful for that. I would think, I would suppose, that if that ever happened, it might make an impression. Upon me. It certainly did with Abimelech. And so Abimelech tells everyone, decades later, this guy Isaac, his wife, not sister, Rebecca, they're off limits. Don't touch them, or I'll kill you. And so Isaac has a measure of peace. And we read in verses 12 through 14, and Isaac sowed, in that land, that means he planted seeds. He sowed in that land and reaped in the same year 100 fold And Yahweh, the Lord, blessed him. And the man became great and continued to grow greater until he became very great. And he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and many servants, so that the Philistines were jealous of him. Now, what's a hundredfold? Remember, this is over a one year period. If you have one seed and it produces two carrots, cotton balls, whatever, it has increased a hundred percent. Okay? If it produces two of them, that's a hundred percent. If it produces 10, that is a thousand percent. But if it produces a hundredfold, that's a 10,000 percent increase. Increase in one year. That's a good investment. I mean, you can't get a 10,000% return in one year unless either God blesses you or you're a member of Congress. One of those two. (laughs) It's about the only way. And so God's hand of blessing was upon... Isaac, that day. And when God's hand of blessing is upon you, no one can stop you. No one can stop you. The Pharaoh, many years later, couldn't stop Moses. Why? Because the Pharaoh couldn't stop the Lord God. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't stop Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar can't stop the Lord God. Rome's emperors from Nero... To Diocletian couldn't stop the expansion of the Christian faith. Why? Because they could not stop the Lord God. There is not a power on earth today that can stop you if God's hand of blessing is upon you. The question is simply this. Are you on God's side? Or are you against Him? Are you, as you go through life, flowing With the Spirit of God? Or are you resisting the Spirit of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is absolutely no one. But I'll tell you this too. When when God's hand of blessing is upon you, when you're walking in step with the Spirit of God, someone's not going to like it. Someone's gonna get jealous. Someone's going to oppose you. You will meet resistance. So please be aware of this if you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm with God. I'm right here with God. I'm gonna stick with God. But let me tell you if you lack courage in your commitment with God, if you lack resolve, if you suffer a failure of nerve, I'll tell you what's gonna happen. You're gonna meet that resistance. And your commitment to the Lord will begin to erode over time because you don't like the resistance of walking with God. You don't like the resistance you get from the world by walking with God. And eventually, if you lack courage and resolve and you have a failure of nerve, you will end up transferring your allegiance to the world without even knowing it. You will end up thinking, oh yeah, I'm serving the Lord, I'm serving the Lord, all the while partnering with the enemies of God to oppose Him and to oppose His work. In verses 15 and 16, we read, Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. For you are too mighty for us. What an amazing thing. Isaac had become so wealthy and so powerful that the king said, you're too strong. Go away. And they had already packed up with dirt all of these huge wells that Abraham, his father, had dug. Well, then in verse 17, Isaac goes away. We read, and Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar, and settled there. He just traveled a little ways. He was more or less a next-door neighbor, down that little path in red you see on the screen. He just traveled a little ways, went out, out of town, down into the valley. And then we read in verses 18 and 19, Then Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. But the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he called them by the same names by which his father had called them. Then Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water. A well of flowing water. Let me tell you something you probably don't see in your English translation. The word flowing is really the word living. Isaac found a well of living water. Obviously reminds us of John 4. And Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well. And they had a conversation about Jesus himself being a fountain of living water. And then in verse 20 we read, And the herdsmen of Gerar contended with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Esek, because they quarreled with him. Esek means contention. And so can you imagine They push you out of town, you dig a well, it's your well, you go down and you get the water, and someone says, oh no, hey, the water that's flowing down at the bottom of that well, that's our water. It came from us. You can't have that. So, verse 21, they dug another well, and they contended over it also, and he called that well Sitna, which means enmity or strife. Then he moved away from there. And dug another well, in verse 22, and they did not contend over it. So he named it Rehoboth and said, At last, Yahweh has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. The word Rehoboth means broad places. Reminds me of the name of our church, Broadview we could biblically be called Rehoboth Baptist Church. <laughs> We're not going to be. Because no one knows what Rehoboth means until you do now. But nevertheless, there's a lot of space for Isaac and his, all of his uh, crops that he's going to plant and all of his herds. The real point of this verse is this that the Lord gave Isaac what Isaac needed to be fruitful. The Lord provided for his own people what they needed to obey him. God always gives us what we need to obey him. And let me make that more clear. There's nothing you lack. There's nothing that you don't have You cannot say to God, well, God, if if I only had this, then I could obey you. No. You have everything you need already to obey the Lord. God is the Lord of the harvest. And then in verse 23, we read, and he went from there to Beersheba. Beersheba is down the path, down the yellow path on the screen uh, to another area. And we read in verse 24, And Yahweh appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your seed for the sake of my servant Abraham. So what did Isaac do? Verse 25, very important verse. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug out a well. Let's look at this closely for a minute. Isaac built an altar to the Lord. Building an altar is very important in that day because it was a claim of territory. Israel's neighbors did this. They built altars to their gods. And they were basically saying by doing that, that this land that we have, it's dedicated, it's watched over by our gods. And so we, we call upon our gods. We hope our gods will look down from heavens, the heavens and see that there's an altar here. And they'll, they might give us good crops. They might give us lots of kids. That was their intent. But Isaac, Isaac knew the true God. And Isaac's altar showed allegiance that he had. To the Lord, and it also marked the land as His. And we read in this verse that Isaac called upon the name of the Lord. Sometimes we sing songs that talk about, "I will call on the name of the Lord." What does that really mean? Does that mean well, we just sort of we pray? Is that what it means? It, it, it does mean that we pray, but it means much more than only praying. To call on the name of the Lord is a declaration. It means this. Lord, we are yours. We belong to you. You are our God. We pledge allegiance to you and to you alone. And we declare that there is No other God that we will worship but you alone. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. It means you have believing loyalty to Him and to Him alone. And we read that Isaac pitched his tent there. This wasn't a Boy Scout pup tent. Okay, I couldn't even put one of those up back in the day. All right, this was a serious tent. This was a permanent tent. This is a a home. Bedouin tents, even to this day, are are huge, especially for an incredibly wealthy man like Isaac. So this is going to be Isaac's home here at Beersheba. Verses 26 and 27, Now Abimelech came to him from Gerar, and he brought his advisor Ahuzath and Philchol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me? And you've sent me away from you. I mean, think about this. Isaac was nearby. He was in the same town. And Abimelech said, Hey, brother, you got to go. You're too big for us. You have to leave. So Isaac left. He didn't resist. Then Isaac dug a well. And they said, No, no, no. The Water in that well? That's our water. He didn't resist. He moved away. He built another well. He dug another well. No, no, the water in that well, that's ours too. Isaac didn't resist. He went away, he dug a third well of his own. And now he's moved even farther away from Abimelech. He's not even close to Abimelech. Why did he he not resist all this time? Well, simply, some battles aren't worth fighting. There are some things in life that just aren't worth fighting for. You're going to get awfully tired by fighting every single battle just because you think you're right, even if you are right. Some battles aren't worth fighting. You know, all the time you spend trying to get back what's taken from you, there's more going out the door. And so Isaac finds it easier to walk away. But now, Abimelech goes out of his way to find Isaac. And not only does Abimelech come, but he brings his his trusted advisor, he brings the general of his army I mean, so you can imagine the scene. Here's Abimelech, the king, along with two other key leaders, and maybe, we're not told, maybe they're accompanied by 20 others, 20 soldiers, maybe 100 soldiers. I mean, shouldn't Isaac fear for his life? Well, the answer is no. And here's why. You see, 100 years earlier, over 100 years earlier, Isaac's daddy Abraham had 318 fighting men. That did not even include the other male servants who were in his extended household. And now that corporate empire has been inherited by Isaac. And Isaac has increased it. The Lord really has increased it by leaps and bounds. Even one year, producing a 10,000% profit. I mean, no matter how many men Abimelech brought, Isaac has more. The Lord's been good. No one's messing with Isaac. In fact... We're going to see that Abimelech is in a weak position. And Isaac wants to know, what's the problem? I left you guys alone at your request. What's the deal? Then they said in verse 28 and 29, we see plainly that Yahweh has been with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us cut a covenant with you so that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You now are the blessed of Yahweh. Can you imagine having a foreign king come and submit himself to Isaac? What a beautiful testimony of God's power and blessing. And Abimelech wants a covenant. He wants a non-aggression pact between the two. Abimelech does not want to be on the wrong side of Yahweh. Abimelech knows he cannot defeat the Lord. So he's going to sue for peace or he's going to try to make peace with Isaac. Verse 30, then he, Isaac, made them a feast, and they ate and drank in the morning. They arose early, and each swore to the other, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Isaac did what was customary. He showed them hospitality first, so they did business later. And Isaac showed Abimelech hospitality. He's the host. He's the leader. And now Isaac has peace. Isaac has prosperity. Verses 32 and 33, Now it happened on that day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba, which is very similar to the Hebrew word for covenant. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Imagine that. On the very day, that Isaac had this incredible peace treaty with Abimelech. His servants come in and say, we dug a well and we found water. On that day, just in case anyone was not absolutely certain that God's hand of blessing was on Isaac. God has provided Isaac with peace. God has provided Isaac with prosperity. You know, in this story, had God not intervened. Isaac would have made a mistake that would have destroyed his family forever. Isaac was ready to give his wife away in order to save his own skin. Instead of trusting in the Lord to protect Rebekah and to protect him, instead of trusting in the Lord's ability to keep his own promises, Isaac's heart was filled with fear. You know, I often uh, wonder how many times the invisible hand of God has kept me from self-destruction. I look back on my life and I think about the many things that could have turned out much worse than they did. But for some reason, not because I earned it, not because I deserved it, God has been good to me. How about you? Has God been good to you? I wonder if you look back on your life and you think about how things could have turned out, how poorly they could have turned out. Does that not inspire us in the quietness of this time to simply say to the Lord in the quietness of our hearts, Thank you. Thank you, God. If God has been good to you, I think you ought to say that to Him. You know, if you're a believer in Christ, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that God is for you. Now, God never promised that He would make you be able to escape all of the consequences of your dumb actions. Okay? Okay? You do something dumb, you might suffer the consequences. He never promised that. But God has promised to be with you. He has promised to never leave you. He has promised to never forsake you. He has promised to love you with an everlasting love. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, I think today is the day for you to call upon the name of the Lord. Today is the day where you can say to Him, Lord Jesus Christ, You alone are my God and my Lord. I forsake all the other gods. I forsake all the other efforts to try to find peace in my heart, to try to find relief from my guilt, to try to find forgiveness for my wrongdoings, to try to find cleansing from the stain of my sin, I call upon you, Jesus, as Lord and God, to be God to me, to grant me these benefits that you give your children. It is Jesus Christ alone who lived a perfect life, a righteous life, It is Jesus Christ alone who died on the cross. It's Him alone who rose from the grave. It's Him alone who ascended to heaven as Lord. And it's Him alone who will return to this earth as King over this earth one day. Will you turn to Him today?